Major Lindsay in Africa presents Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. Hello and welcome to Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. I am Mark Yacono, your host, and this podcast is brought to you by Major Lindsay in Africa, the world's leading legal search firm. My guest today is Gina Cho. Gina Cho is an accomplished attorney, a meditation expert, and co-author of the book, Anxious Lawyer, along with Karen Gifford. It's a meditation guide for lawyers and legal professionals. Gina, now would be a great time to turn it over to you to share some of your background and your story, uh, along with how you came to have this passion for meditation, mindfulness, and helping the legal profession embrace both. Thank you so much for having me. So as you mentioned, I practice law um, in the San Francisco Bay Area with my husband. So he is not only my life partner, but also my law partner, and we do consumer bankruptcy. Um, and how I came to practice mindfulness and meditation is that, you know, I think there are so many things that law school doesn't teach us, but one of the main things that law school doesn't teach us is that as lawyers, we're often faced with people that are going through some sort of a trauma. We're in the human suffering business. And needless to say, no one ever comes to see a bankruptcy lawyer for fun. Um, and, you know, I just didn't have the tools for managing my clients suffering. You know, they would come in and tell me these heartbreaking stories. And and I'd go home thinking about it. I'd fall asleep thinking about my clients. I'd wake up in the middle of the night thinking about my clients. I'd wake up in the morning thinking about my clients. And, and we can go um, more into details if you like. But um, eventually I was diagnosed with social anxiety disorder. And one of the treatments that I got was mindfulness and meditation. And um, when I learned more about it, I realized that it's such an incredible tool for not only managing anxiety disorders, but also to reduce stress and anxiety and also cultivating more joy, which is not something that I ever thought about in, I don't know, 10 plus years of practicing law. Well, that is a terrific uh, bit of background information, and I know you've been very open about, um, you know, coming to terms with your own issues and the treatment and therapy you went through to overcome your anxiety disorder and how you've really built on that to, to help many other people in the profession. And I think it's great that you're focused on bringing joy and peace and not necessarily focused as much on uh, sort of that perpetual dialogue about mental illness. I think one of the things that's arisen out of the last two years is a lot of focus on mental illness and substance abuse in the legal profession. But at the same time, there is, at least from my perspective, a lack of discussion about really affirmative wellness and joy, which are which are not necessarily the same thing. So I, I'm really mm -hmm. pleased to have you today because I think you bring a great perspective. Thank you. You know, I was I was doing my homework like a dutiful student and I read one of your recent blog posts uh, and it was why corporate America looks loves mindfulness but law firms resist it. And can you share some con context for what drove that article and what experiences shaped your point of view there? Yeah, I think so often lawyers have a misperception about what mindfulness and meditation is. And I've also gotten 
or had conversations with lawyers that kind of have this mindset, like, you know, I had a tough as a young attorney and we should make sure that everybody else has a tough time as young attorney too, you know, that we really wear sort of um, as an honor or a badge, um, this constant feeling of stress and anxiety. It's almost like if you're not constantly stressed or anxious, you must be a bad lawyer. Um, so, you know, often when I talk about mindfulness meditation or even just more holistically well-being, there is this pushback that says we're coddling the lawyers or we're going to train them to be soft. You know, we need lawyers to be like warriors. They're, um, you know, that they have to be sort of, they have to have these hard edges. Um, and that, you know, that we're not here to get along, we're not here to sing kumbaya, like there is this kind of misunderstanding of what mindfulness meditation does. Um, you know, when we're certainly here in the Bay Area, there's just so much buzz about mindfulness and meditation and all the tech companies especially, but, you know, they're not doing it because it's, you know, that they want their employees to sort of become lax or um, not productive, you know, it's just the opposite. It is a tool that we can use to train the mind for greater focus and concentration, um, and also to have more ease. Um, and, you know, I think this sense that we have to sort of work all the time um, to be, you know, quote unquote, good lawyers is something that I think it's very unique to the legal profession in many ways, you know, this expectation that you just work around the clock. Yeah, I think that's a, a really, really valid point. And, and it's funny when you talk about sort of the I had it tough, you should have it tough too mentality. I keep going back to all those medical shows like ER where the new residents would come in and they were expected to work as hard and be treated as awfully as their attendings were. And it <laughs> seems like yeah. that, analogy, that analogy actually carries over into, you know, many law firms, which is, we should pass down the grief rather than pay forward the benefit. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, mean, I don't think law, law practice needs to be that way. Um, and, you know, I think it's, with, especially with the younger lawyers, there is a sort of rejection of the old way of doing things because, you know, obviously the younger attorneys just grew up in a different environment. You know, they grew up with the, all this technology and the iPhone and, um, so this old way of thinking, like you have to have your butt in, you know, in your in, in your office for 14 hours a day to be a good lawyer, or um, you know, you have to work seven days a week, you know, those type of expectations. Um, you know, I, I don't know that that it's it's um, it's equivalent to being a good lawyer. It's it seems from what you're saying is you still see a pretty pervasive. Uh, old school view that you have to log long hours, you have to work all the time, you have to push yourself beyond certain limits to be successful is still fairly prevalent. Yeah, and I think it's so much of that is because the legal system, while in many ways has changed how we bill, how we measure productivity hasn't, you know, we still bill by the hour. Um, so the only measure of productivity is the number of hours that you're billing. And then, so then, then that gets equated to how many hours are in the office or how many hours are logged in. But, but we don't necessarily look at, you know, other measures of productivity. 
Yeah, I don't think we have arrived at within the legal profession what I would call deep work metrics. And I get that from Mm -hmm. a book that Cal Cal Newport wrote on deep work, where Mm -hmm. actually there's only a limited amount of time that you're capable of really doing deep work. And if you maximize those those periods of time, you'll be far more productive than working all the time because much of that time is sort of just um, sub-quality airspace, if you will, because you're beyond, you know, you're beyond reasonable limitations for doing deep thinking. Yeah. Yeah, and basically what you're doing is you're doing sort of work with a distracted mind, right? Um, you know, deep work is all about having a more focused mind, but as you mentioned, you know, you can only sustain that focused mind for so long. So when you're asked to consult with a law firm or a legal department, can you give us a flavor of how you engage the client in terms of initial discussions and then some of the types of things you try to help them accomplish? Because I think that what you're doing is really valuable, but I know that most of our listeners, while they may have heard of meditation and mindfulness, really can't conceive right now how a consultant can come in and help with that. I think they probably all visualize someone coming in in yoga pants and humming, and we know it's not that. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, so the prime, um, you know, one of the most common ways that clients um, engage my services is just offering a one or two hour CLE. Um, There are you know, more and more states are now mandating some sort of a mental health CLE in California. It's called competence issues. Um, in Illinois, it's called like wellness CLE. Um, so, you know, I think it's great that state bar associations are now requiring that this be a topic of conversation. So that's sort of like the entry level. Um, and, and also I do some um, one-on-one coaching um, with lawyers that are perhaps struggling with you know, just some anxiety issues. Um, so that's another way. And then um, the sort of the, for the clients that are interested in a longer program, um, I also do, you know, weekly uh, mindfulness sessions. So those are um, uh, broadcasted um, through video conferencing. But, you know, really what the tools of mindfulness meditation um, is doing is to kind of reduce all of that like background noise, you know, we talked a little bit about um, deep thinking that's constantly sort of buzzing in our head, you know, all all the narrations about how it is that you're performing or what you're doing or how you're doing it or not doing. So we can actually have more clarity um, in our mind so that we can actually be more focused so it's easier to concentrate. so those are sort of the main ways in which law firms um, engage my services. And, you know, it's more holistically about creating a space where, um, you know, the people within the organization value well-being. So it seems like bar associations have progressed from, I remember when CLE first became a requirement, which was too long ago to, to share, <laughs> to adding um, a section on ethics and then eventually a section on ethics and a section on substance abuse. And now it looks like many state bar associations and local bar associations are requiring um, some type of session on uh, COE session on mindfulness or 
or coping or however you'd want to wrap that up. I think you said in California, what is it called? Competence? Confidence issues. Yeah. Com I think it's a, a confidence issues. Yeah. I think it's a, it's an awareness that not every lawyer is going to struggle with some sort of a mental illness, you know, um, but that, but of course, every single one of us has a mental health that we have to tend to, um, you know, as, as a way to, um, I guess, reduce the likelihood of developing some sort of a mental illness. Um, and also, you know, I don't think that should be the bar, right, is to avoid having mental illness. I think, you know, we want to be whole human beings. We want to be happy. We want to have, we want to find satisfaction and joy in our law practice. You know, I think that's, that's, the, um, that's the aspirational goal. And, you know, the goal shouldn't be, well, you know, we don't want everybody in our firm to develop some sort of a drinking issue. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that may have been lost in a lot of the, the, the publications and it may have been exacerbated in, in some ways by the ABA Hazleton Betty Ford study, which is a good thing, but it also kind of shed a spotlight on sort of the, the sickness elements that, 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 are, that the professions facing in terms of mental illness, substance abuse, uh, alcohol abuse. But it it really does not really get to the issue of we should be happy and able to to do our jobs without anxiety attacks or without feeling guilty for being with our family. And we should be able to come to work knowing that we can cope with whatever comes to us with a sense of some equanimity. And, and I think that that's a great point that you raise is there's a counterbalance to to the mental illness discussion, which is ways to enjoy and be mentally well, not just ways to enjoy, uh, ways to avoid becoming mentally ill. Right. Yeah, and and sometimes there can be this, I don't know, like thought process as well. You know, we shouldn't really focus on things like joy or happiness. After all, we're lawyers. But I think being, as I said earlier, sort of being whole human beings that um, have, you know, a balanced life that, you know, are experiencing joy and satisfaction. I think that those are ingredients for being a good lawyer. I mean, not just good, you know, wife or mom or dad or husband, but um, so I think this sense like, well, we're lawyers, we shouldn't focus on those things. They're kind of misguided. I mean, those are the recipes for being you know, good at anything that you do. Well, I have an anecdote. When I was in private practice and running a very significant practice group, we went through an exercise of trying to figure out who we wanted to be in three years, what kind of clients, what kind of client profile, and what did we want our practice group um, mentality ethos to be. And one of the things we had in there was we wanted it to be fun. And I remember the presiding partner in the firm saw our document and said, that's an unacceptable work goal, having fun. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, one of the reasons why people want to come over to the building where we are and want to work with our group is because there's energy in the air. And you know why? Because people like what they do. They work very hard, but they enjoy it. And he's like, fun is not an acceptable business goal. <laughs> okay. I didn't stay much longer after that because I felt like that was a battle that couldn't be won. But I also think it ties to a larger narrative, which is if you look at client 
satisfaction surveys, in-house council satisfaction surveys, one of the biggest things that they come back at with is that their lawyers don't listen to them. And to mm-hmm. me, that is, that is a direct correlation to not having a grasp on emotional intelligence and not having a mindful approach to the work is that right. you're busy executing and not really in a position to be taking in what the client's actually saying to you. Yeah. Yeah, I think that often comes from this feeling of, you know, being rushed all the time, sort of thinking about the next thing on the agenda because we're so overworked. And again, I think that's where mindfulness meditation comes in. It's so helpful is because, you know, we talked about earlier, it really kind of, uh, we're practicing that ability to be in the moment so that when you're speaking with a client, all of your attention is on that client and you're not thinking about, you know, what emails come in, you know, if there are ECF notices, you know, are there text messages or whatever the mind is busily doing. Um, and also mindfulness meditation uh, um, helps us to be, be more empathetic. Um, you know, one of the really interesting thing that happened after I started practicing mindfulness is that, you know, the, how I do my client intake radically changed so that there is a sense of spaciousness. I mean, I'm only, I'm still only spending that hour to do the initial consultation, but I'm not like pumping them for all the information, you know, because I think sometimes that can, we can do that. We can sort of say, well, these are the facts that I need. Let me ask you a bunch of questions rather than giving the client an ability to have that sense of spaciousness where it's like, okay, like I have time. This person has time to hear my story and let me tell it in the way that feels, um, uh, you know, how I experience it rather than having to tell the story in the way that the lawyer wants to hear it. That's a very counterintuitive thing though, don't you think? Because Young lawyers are trained that they should always have a rigid deposition outline or they should have a rigid client interview outline. And the truth is sometimes having a page of topic sentences and allowing the client to talk elicits far more information than adhering to, quote, an outline, which becomes the focus of what you're doing as opposed to listening to the client and being in the moment. And our main goal as lawyers is to be, you know, counsel. And one of the ways that we can do that is building that sense of trust. And I don't think that can happen if you're, if you have, you know, if you're sitting there with your long list of questions and it's almost like you're cross-examining them at the initial. You know, obviously there are times where that's appropriate, but I'm really talking about that those initial first contacts, right, where you're really. Um, building that, you know, that that um, that confidence, building that, you know, sense of comfort and ease with with the person that you're working with. So I'd like to talk a little bit about your coaching practice because I think that's um, it, it's a great thing for people who 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 have access to coaches. And let's let's just say a, a young associate or a mid level associate comes to you and they are really. Um, just angst-ridden. They're they're constantly worried about what the partners are going to say to them. They're constantly feeling like they're not doing enough at home, um, or they're not attending to their own health, or they don't have time to even get a proper lunch. What's the process by which you sort of untangle all of that knotted tissue, for lack of a better word, and get them to a point where they can start to embrace mindfulness um, strategies and approaches. How do you, in terms of your intake of a client like that, what's your approach to 
to get them to a point where you where you can do some, some where you can really give them some help. It, there are a lot of different ways of approaching anxiety, um, and different techniques or different approaches work better for um, people. So part of a, a lot of what we're doing is kind of exploring, trying different techniques and seeing what works. Um, but it's but often people will come and say like I feel anxious in these specific situations. Sometimes it's just sort of generalized anxiety, um, and sometimes it can coexist. But um, sometimes it's really helpful to pay attention to the body and how it feels in in every situation, right? In all of those anxious-ridden situations. So if you're sitting with um, you know with a partner and you're doing performance reviews or something like that. There, there's a very specific set of physiological responses that we identify as anxiety. Um, so, you know, you might notice that your heart starts pounding or your, you know, your palms get sweaty or you can feel like your face is getting flushed or your stomach is t getting tied in knots. All of those physiological reactions then go up to the brain and then we assign meaning to that physiological reaction. So you say, oh, I'm feeling anxious. Why am I feeling anxious? Well, it's because I'm about to get a bad performance review. And if I get that, then I'm going to be fired and then I won't be able to pay off my student loan and I'm gonna to have to move back to my parents and I'm going to be homeless. You know, like we tend to sort of see that, that um, the anxiety loop all the time. So. Uh, you know, uh, the biggest thing that we're trying to do when we're working with anxiety is to that, break that cycle of anxiety. That physiological reaction to anxiety can only have a shelf life for about 60 seconds. But what happens is that we're constantly refeeding that anxiety with additional thoughts that are fueling um, the anxiety. So if we can learn to relax the body, right, and to be in the moment and to kind of calm that that yammer that's constantly happening, that's feeding the anxiety. And then you know, then you can show up with, with more confidence in every situation. So that's one way to actually look at the physiological reaction. And the other way we can approach it is to actually look at the thoughts, right? So if the thoughts are like, um, you know, I I don't know what I'm doing, or I'm terrible at this, or you know, I don't even think I should be at this job, or I don't know, um, you know, who do I think, you know, who do you think you are, whatever those thoughts are, to um, almost like put those thoughts on the witness stand and cross-examine it, you know, what evidence do you have um, that those thoughts are true, you know, what are the other interpretations? Um, so those are sort of two primary ways of approaching, and a lot of times, like, well, you know, especially if it's like around social situation, like, having a, you know, conversation and, you know, maybe the associates feel uncomfortable with, maybe they don't feel like, you know, they, um, they feel confident in what it is that they're doing and they need to have a conversation with, you know, a partner. Um, we'll like role play some of those conversations. So there is just, you know, a little bit more of a comfort that they can experience. So as I heard you describe that process, a couple of things came to mind. One, in cognitive therapy, there's a term called catastrophizing. Mm -hmm. Where yeah. you kind of immediately go to the, to the most horrific outcome for any thought that you might have, and it sounds like for some people that physiological loop, physiological response loop, is sort of like a cycle of catastrophizing of what ifs, what ifs, what ifs, extrapolated to potentially the most extreme and and potentially totally unlikely negative outcome. And the other thing is the 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 sense of identifying the self-talk and challenging the assumptions 
Um, all of those seem to to, to have elements of, of of the types of techniques that they 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 try to teach if you go through cognitive behavioral therapy. And I think you you mentioned in your bio that that was part of your treatment regimen when you were diagnosed with the anxiety disorder. Yeah, and I think CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and mindfulness are such beautiful complements. Um, you know, I think what mindfulness and meditation kind of adds to a cognitive behavioral therapy is this is this ability, this practice, really, of being kinder to yourself. Um, you know, I think so often we become lawyers and we become successful being lawyers because we're like really hard driven and we are constantly using the whip as a way to motivate ourselves. And um, but you know, that's really taxing on on your on your mental health. Um, and so, you know, can you replace that? Can you replace that sort of um, driver with, with with a friendlier tone? Which is not to say that we're not going to continue to strive and to do better. But you know, what happens if you try to use like positive psychology, right, to motivate yourself um, to do do better? Because you know, so much of you know um, what you know. Obviously, we learned this in cognitive behavioral therapy is that so much of our anxiety and stress is internal. You know, it's like we're feeding the machine, and that um, we're feeding like the stress and anxiety machine. There is um, there is a, a great author, Gary John Bishop, who's written two really compelling books that have a word I can't mention on our podcast. But his central thesis is that we allow a negative dialogue to go on in our head all the time, which is actually a self-fulfilling prophecy because we mm. haven't figured we haven't figured out how to stop that dialogue and reinforce those negative beliefs. And I think what you, what you're talking about are ways in which you can actually identify what that dialogue is and help stop it. I guess one question I have is what's the interplay or how do you, if a coaching client comes to you, how do you assess whether coaching in and of itself may help this individual or whether this individual in fact needs to perhaps see a therapist or or work with with a specialist. Is there um, are there signs that you look for? Or is it is it more intuitive? But how do you interact with sort of the treatment community? I guess is the best way I know how to put it right now. Yeah, and I think that's a really good question. I will often recommend my clients work with both. Um, you know, therapy um, is all about sort of treating the illness, um, whereas coaching. It's really sort of uh, propelling you to the next step, right? So we'll, um, you know, so it's more like focused on, okay, I'm feeling anxious in this specific situation, you know, for example, a hearing. Um, and so we'll kind of work with that, you know, how do, um, how can we help you prepare so that you, you can feel more confident at the hearing or, you know, what are some of the thoughts that you're playing out in your head about what is going to happen at the hearing? And, you know, in that line between, you know, where does therapy end and coaching begin, you know, I think that's, that can often be kind of fuzzy. I mean, not only in the context of just working with stress and anxiety, but, you know, in, in like a lot of different areas. But my goal as a coach is to kind of uh, to help you um, reduce the stress and anxiety so that you can have a greater sense of ease and, you know, and really perform at your peak. It sounds like role playing is a valuable tool in your coaching, um, your coaching uh, tool belt. 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So beyond, you know, role playing and awareness, um, do you, do you teach people how to meditate? I do. Yeah. So every session starts with a short meditation. Um, and, you know, and I definitely encourage all of my clients to meditate daily because it's, it's a practice. Right? It's not something that we can know cognitively. It's almost like reading a book on running. That's not going to help you to run. Like you actually have to do the practice. Um, and, and also, you know, we work on other techniques, too. So, you know, breathing techniques, um, body scans, um, you know, mantra practice, like all of these different practices uh, that can help you sort of calm your nervous system. When you, when you work with a coaching client, what is the initial receptivity to trying these techniques? No, I think for my coaching clients, they um, they're very receptive because otherwise they wouldn't come to me. You know? uh, so I, you know, I would say almost all of them are. You know, they that's also part of their goal is not only just to reduce stress and anxiety, but they want to cultivate a regular mindfulness and meditation practice because um, they see the value and how that would help them in in all these different arenas of their life. As you've worked with coaching clients and they, and they've gone through their 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 work with you, have you been able to keep track on some or many of them and and see how they're doing after they they leave the coaching realm? Um, some of them, yeah, some of them I do keep in touch with. Um, and, and, you know, I don't think, like, coaching it should be, like, a forever thing. Like, I try to work with my clients for about six months, and they come to me with very specific goals. Um, and right. then, you know, and then we'll, I'll you know, usually, or they'll check in with me and just kind of see how things are progressing and, you know, just kind of making sure that they're continuing to use their tools. Because, like, anything, if you don't use it, then, you know, that those old habits can creep back in. Well, that... Um... That certainly is true, and it sounds like that you spend a lot of your time when you coach clients, helping them develop habits, or in, in not just one habit, but different habits that will help them relieve anxiety and live more in the present and be more mindful. And I know that you just said a minute ago, or probably slightly more than a minute ago, that you start each session with um, a short meditation. Did I hear you right? I guess. Well, since I have you on the line, would you like to perhaps maybe close out our session with a, a short meditation? I know you you like to do that when you have an opportunity. Yeah, I would love to do that. Um, so we'll just do a very short, like, two-minute practice. And just as a disclaimer, if you're driving, you want to bookmark this for doing it later because we will be closing the eyes. Um, so wherever you may be, um, just let's just start by finding a comfortable seated position. We don't often think about how we're sitting. And so doing a quick body scan and noticing the position of your body. And if it feels good, you can roll your shoulders back. That's a place where we can hold a lot of tension. You can also bring your shoulders up to the ears and allow them to drop. And then dropping down and feeling your sit bone and noticing the parts of the body that's making contact with the chair below you or whatever you may be sitting on. And see if you can allow the body to sit a little bit deeper into the seat. 
And if you haven't done so already, allow the eyes to soften. And then continuing down to the feet and really noticing the contact between the feet and the floor below you. And as you sit, just notice that the body is breathing. And so not changing how you're breathing in any way, but just noticing the in-breath, followed by the out-breath. And let's just spend the next 10 or 15 seconds just sitting here with nothing to do, with nowhere else to be, and just breathing, breathing in. And breathing out. And now let's close the practice by very gently beginning to wiggle the fingers and toes and moving your body in any way that feels good to you. And when you feel ready, allow the eyes to open. So that's it. I think that was about two minutes. I wasn't keeping track, but <laughs> it felt it felt like two minutes. But the thing that I instantly noticed is when you stop and you do that, you begin to feel like where in your specific parts of your body you're actually holding in tension, where you're clenching, where your muscles are engaged when they shouldn't be. It's very interesting to to get that biofeedback when you slow down. Yeah, yeah, and I think we often really underestimate that mind-body, and you know, like it's all one thing, really. But um, yeah, that you know, that the physiological reaction to stress, um, you know, so often I think lawyers are really disconnected from their bodies, and you know, I'll say like when you feel stress, where in the body do you notice tension, and they'll kind of give me this look like what are you talking about? Like, I don't feel anything in my body when I'm stressed. And it's like, oh, no, you do. <laughs> so let's start there. <laughs> well, that was terrific. Do you want to remind the audience the title of your book? Sure. The book is The Anxious Lawyer. And it is it available on Amazon, I presume? Yes, it's um, available on Amazon. It's also available um, in Audible. And both Karen and myself narrated it. I must confess, I knew it was available on Amazon because I bought it yesterday. So I'm looking <laughs> very forward to reading it, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to share um, once again the title of your book and that it's available both in audible and um, um, physical format. Um, Gina, it has been a pleasure. One of the great things about this podcast, which is a labor of love for me and, and, and about a cause I'm really passionate about, for two causes I'm passionate about, mental illness and erasing the stigma and holistic view of wellness is that I meet great people and, and you've been so generous with your time and I truly um, treasure the, the fact that you were willing to take some time out of your day and, and, and share, it, share it with us. So um, this has been Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health issues in the legal profession and my guest today has been attorney and author Gina Cho. Thank you all for listening and Gina, thanks once again for, your, for agreeing to participate. Discover how Major Lindsay in Africa can help you navigate the legal landscape. 
at www.mlaglobal.com. Thank you.